Well, let me go to the extreme and tell you, outside my freshman history class, when a fight broke out one day, one of the boys, I'm talking about a 16, 17-year-old kid, I got stabbed in the heart outside my history class. So this was heavy stuff. Welcome to another episode of Return on Character podcast, where we interview famous and should be famous people who think character matters and make me better for having had a chance to sit down with them. Today, we have a special guest, um, <laughs> you know, a very special guest, Clifford Hudson, former CEO of Sonic Corp, right? Yep. Yep. And um, uh, Clifford was at uh, Sonic for 35 years and really stewarded the company uh, through its IPO and and beyond, and only recently stepped down. I think in 2019, uh, if that's right, just before. Yeah, it was, uh, it, yeah, just say December of 2018. So 2018, just in time to get ready to sit back and enjoy the pandemic in your house. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Well, welcome, Clifford. Thank you so much for giving of your time to me and everybody else who's getting a chance to to hear your story. Um, where where do we find you today? Where are you located right now? Well, Sonic's headquarters is Oklahoma City, and so all my thirty five years of the company, um, I was in uh, uh, that in Oklahoma City with the corporate headquarters. I'm still here. Um, I my sons are a couple of different places, and so I. Um, enjoy the time my sons one in oklahoma city and one in new york city but um uh so but most of my time is in in uh still in uh, oklahoma city we've got a grand my wife and i have a grandson here and so um that's the place to be so yeah that's where you belong now um, the other thing i forgot to mention which i i i hope you you'll you'll tell us about um at some point is um clifford is also a, an author of one of the best titled books I've seen it a long time called Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. I love that title. Uh, yeah. I relate with it a little bit. Yeah, uh, good. Um, I don't know that I've reached the top. But anyway, thank you for being with us. Tell us a little bit about how you got started, like where you grew up, what kind of formed your early experiences of life, your character, your family. and. Right and just the progression into Sonic, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, happy to do so, Dan. Thank you for the opportunity. Great to be with you and your guests today. Um, so uh, I grew up in, uh, uh, in first in North Texas, born in Dallas, and spent my elementary school years in Wichita Falls. Um, my father owned a small business there, and uh, uh, had a, had, he had a single partner. It was a trust manufacturing business so they they in essence made uh, roofs roofs for houses you know and uh, my family lived there roughly until I finished elementary school we moved to Oklahoma City for my my dad to take a different position why was that so you talk about formative things in your life um, when I was uh, um, 11 years old uh, my dad's business failed completely and um, uh, the, I had some of the story then, some of the story later, and I never got all the story, I'm sure. But uh, his partner had embezzled from him, and when there was a downturn in the economy that was just laid bare, my, my parents really lost everything, including our home. So as an 11-year-old kid, I was the uh, more or less, functionally, the, the youngest of four kids. I had a twin sister, but she was 
at that point in time, she was a foot taller than me, so I always felt like she was uh, uh, a bit older than me, even though she was only three minutes older than me. But uh, at any rate, I was kind of the little kid in the family, and uh, that that was uh, pretty stunning to uh, lose your family home and uh, uproot and relocate altogether. And so that was something uh, I, I, I sometimes say, and it, it's literal, it's it, well figurative, but literal. Um, my father had very little concept of retained earnings. So this, uh, uh-huh. this, affected, this affected me as I became an adult. And uh, just to, not to fast forward too much there, but literally when Sonic went public, the, the first thing I did with some of my proceeds was to pay off my home. And um, and make sure I never put debt against it again. So you can tell the impact that had on me as a kid, you know, to to see my family uprooted and what they did in my family. At any rate, uh, we moved to Oklahoma City, where I was for the next ten years, and there were some significant things that occurred there that uh, really helped form me quite dramatically in the in that in that next ten years. Um, I then decided. Uh, and I'm happy to go back to some of that detail, probably two different things that were key. Well, let me just go ahead and touch on that. Two different yeah, well, well, yeah. T- tell me about them. Okay. Then uh, early teens and then later teens. Uh, the early teens, uh, just in terms of developing perseverance and uh, uh, assuming responsibility and seeing things through. Uh, at 11 years old, when we first moved to Oklahoma City, I began delivering the, the morning newspaper. Actually, the local newspaper had morning, afternoon, and Sunday. So the only time you didn't deliver was Sunday afternoon. So I, you know, for two years, then did uh, newspaper delivery. And I think as a kid, that just teaches you tons of uh, responsibility. Get up every morning at 3.30 in the morning to get out and roll the newspapers, deliver them through thick and thin, rain, snow. I mean, it was, you know, Oklahoma can have pretty ugly weather. And, uh, and, um, so that was a tremendous maturing process through that period of time. That that career for me came to abrupt end in the uh, in the summer when I was thirteen. Uh, after having finished the delivery at five a.m., I got hit by a car for riding what? my bicycle, and uh, so that that ended my <laughs> newspaper How did, career. Did, you got hit by a car. I was, I'd finished delivering the papers. I was actually meeting some other kids to, this summertime and we we're going to get donuts, you know, which, uh, you know, a 13 year old boy who, who doesn't need donuts at five 30 in the morning, you know? And, uh, but the, a driver, a uh, guy who had been working all night, as it turned out, turned out, um, came along behind us, uh, missed the two of them, but swerved back in and, and, uh, hit me. I was, it was, I was riding on a, on a major thoroughfare. Uh, the good, the fortune, good fortune for me. First of all, it didn't damage me more than it did. Uh, but, but also, uh, the guy hit me from behind. I didn't see him coming, and so I had no, you know, you could say you, you wake up with nightmares for years. No, I never had a single nightmare from it. But he, you now he hit me from behind, threw me off the road, uh, and you know, kind of pretty well knocked me out. Uh, laceration across the back of my head and one leg and. And then, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, 40 years later, a doctor asked me, what did you do to your neck? Did you play football as a kid? And I thought, well, okay, no, I didn't play my football, but I did get hit by a car, you know? Anyway, so, um, but the, 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 uh, process of going through that at 11, 12, 13 years old, 
uh, made good money for a kid that age, but more than anything, just learned the the you know how to interact with people, uh, how to you know literally ask people for money, you know, because they had to do that every month, go to every house, then also get up regardless of the nature of the weather, get out and get my newspapers picked up, roll, delivered, and and generally uh, maybe not in the summertime, but during the school year, try to get back home five o'clock and get another hour, hour and a half of sleep before going to school, you know. So this was, uh, this was I think, quite formative for me in terms of uh, diligence and uh, perseverance. And, uh, and, and I was always surprised, um, as an adult, the number of people that would give up on something too quickly, huh. and, you know, co-workers or otherwise. And my, my reaction was, well, if you give up, you are going to fail, I'll guarantee you, you know. So uh, I think the perseverance I got from that was uh, part of it, perhaps personality, watching my parents and DNA and so on. But some of it, no doubt, was uh, uh, some of it, no doubt, was uh, uh, the weave of my personality I developed through that period of time. The other thing in my teen years, then, thinking about late teen years, uh, that uh, was quite significant in terms of my personality development and really where I started taking more formal leadership positions. In my little book that you mentioned, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top, yeah. one, of the, one of the things I do mention is in eighth grade, I had a uh, music teacher who really pulled me into um, leadership activities in the chorus. Now, how, how do you do that at 13 and 14? Leadership. Answer was, uh, if she was going to be absent from the class, I led the boys in warming up and actually led them through all of the you know, songs we had practiced, four-part harmony, et cetera. That may sound like a small thing, but it really changes your self-concept. Because yeah. when you can stand before uh, uh, a group of 40, 12, 13, 14-year-old boys, you know, nasty, ugly, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, and get them first to warm up and then to harmonize, you know, and you you see that you're pulling them through this and they're gone with it, it, uh, it changes your self-concept, you know. For and sure. it did mine. It gave me, I didn't, I didn't call it leadership, but it gave me a sense of realizing that I could do this with my peers and, um, and get them to go a place they might not go otherwise, you know? So in high school, um, I attended a large public high school. And, uh, and when I started in ninth grade, it was the first year of court ordered desegregation. Wow. And, uh, and it was a very challenging, a very, very challenging period of time. Uh, what was difficult it, about it? What, what? I mean, as a well, young kid, you're witnessing some pretty contentious realities, right? Of yeah. some society clashing. Right. Well, let me go to the extreme and tell you, because this 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 uh, this makes the point. Uh, outside my freshman history class, when a fight broke out one day, one of the boys, I'm talking about a 16, 17 year old kid, I got stabbed in the heart outside my history class. So this was, you know, heavy stuff. And um, um, was it was it between African Americans and whites? And yeah, 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 absolutely. So, um, but, um, you know, the question really did become, you know, how do we figure out how to get along and uh, so on. So I, um, I became, uh, for a sophomore year, a student class officer, but also tried to work with kids um, 
to uh, lessen the divides and uh, improve relationships. My junior year, I, be I was asked to become, and I'd ran for it and got elected, president of something called the Human Relations Club, you know, which was geared towards improving understanding, reducing conflicts, et cetera. And then my senior year, um, you know, with a quite diverse student body, uh, was elected uh, president of student government, which is basically student body president, student-wide, you know, student body-wide election for that. And, uh, you know, one of four kids running, two black guys, two white guys. I say in my book, the irony I always had there was the two black guys were both named white, you know, <laughs> and like, no, uh, a small irony, uh, but uh, Renard White and Frank White, and uh, both my classmates and both friends. But on the first ballot, with five, four of us running, I got 56% of the vote. And and this that experience then, uh, serving a year as, a, as a president of the student council and uh, still in some tough uh, socio-cultural times, um, really uh, affected my, again, my self-concept, but also my sense of being able to uh, uh, talk to my peers about you know, direction to go on one thing or another and have them listen and engage and feel and, um, and feel my success uh, with with the uh, with the process. So this is why I, mean, I told you before the show started, when I think about running a franchise organization, I would often go back to being student council president. You know, cool. how do you how do you sell people and coming together and doing these things? And that's that's what to a considerable degree you know, running a franchising business was all about. But I would say yeah. those two, those two or three experiences, the newspaper boy experience in my early teens, um, uh, the initial leadership capacity that my teacher saw in me in eighth grade, and then the experience in high school with a very diverse student body and lots of conflict and so on. Um, by the time I reached 18, graduated from high school, uh, my self-concept had evolved in a lot of ways, and, and my, my belief that I could provide leadership had become real. Well, what's interesting too is that in a position like you had in high school, in a little bit in the franchise environment, you don't have absolute authority. So you have to find a way to win people to your side without kind of having authority over people all the time, right? That, That's right. That, you, That's right. I mean, that yeah. must have been. That must have been very key to later on in the franchise world where you I have some, a, but you don't always exactly have. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Because in the, in the, in those situations in high school, you're right. There was, there, that was not a command and control situation by any means, but you're, you touch on something so fascinating because over the years, as I would have people come to me, um, as I would have people come to me and saying, uh, you know, uh, I want to assume this level of responsibility with the company, but so-and-so doesn't report to me. And if they don't report to me, how am I going to have responsibility for this? And my reply, which was always an easy reply, well, you're running a franchise organization. If you've got to have people report to you in order to have influence, you're in the wrong place. You know, right. and and that usually just stopped the conversation, you know, on, on that point anyway. But that's exactly right. You have to win through influence. Now, you in a, in a franchise organization, you can say, look, guys, we have the contract, we have the authority. But that's a pretty lousy way. You may win the moment, you know, but you don't win the relationship in the long term. And that's not leadership dictate, you know. Right. So I, I my background, um, 
uh, my, the background in which I had grown up uh, was really great for a franchise uh, system. And I enjoyed that much more than I would have a command and control circumstance, you know? Right. Uh, right. It was always more enjoyable to develop a plan, have the team involved in it, have the team involved in selling it, and then uh, that uh, you know some initial testing and stages, and have and show the success, and then sell it more broadly. That was you know that was fun stuff, you know. That's how we that's how we ran a franchise organization, you know. So. Well, tell tell us a little bit about that. I mean, uh, my my friend uh, uh, Scott McLean, who was a former uh, executive with you, I think he was president for Sonic for a while. Yes, I mean he he told me a little bit about just. The uniqueness of the Sonic culture. You showed up. I don't. How old were you when you showed up? I started. Uh, I was 29 when I joined the company. Uh, uh, you know, at the time I didn't think this was the case, but it was kind of. Um, uh, I was 29. I was general counsel of Sonic at the age 29, which wow. I, I thought was I thought was no big deal. I look at it now in retrospect, and I think it's almost ridiculous. You know. <laughs> well, but but one of the things that I would love to hear your thoughts on is that you, you kind of grew up professionally in there. Uh, what are the lessons that you learned from a leadership perspective while you are there? And also, what was it about the culture of Sonic that was different than, say, your competitors? Um, and, and what made that give you kind of a, a, an edge, if you will, as, as the company grew over time? Um, so... When I uh, arrived, uh, Sonic was already 30 years old, and um, that I was going to kick out. People say, did you start the company? And I said, well, I didn't get started the year before I started. It was the year before I was born, you know? So, um, but it was already a franchise organization, franchise dominated. As a matter of fact, really, really, when I joined the company, a group of franchisees owned the company. Oh, really? And, and and it was two years after I joined the company, my boss, the CEO, was working on this the whole time. He wanted to buy the company, and I detail in my book how that came about. It was a little bit of a fluke that we were able to do it, but but we were able to do it, both in terms of getting control of the stock and then and then borrowing the money because none of us had any money. So we have, but we, the franchisees, uh, owned a majority of the stock. Franchisees made up a majority of the board. Of board of directors, and uh, and then of course they were the franchising the system. So it was it was almost impossible to uh, to to run the system really. And everything changed about the culture once we were able to buy the company because you cut out that process of your in essence your boss being the people you were trying to lead and then see Turvey. So I joined Sonic as general counsel. We bought the company. Uh, Almost exactly two years after I, I joined the company, but we worked on it for you know over a year uh, before buying it. So my education about the franchise business came in came from coming in at that level. So it was never a command and control environment, and it was always a process of trying to sell franchisees on stuff, you know, whatever it was. And my boss had a phrase; he would say, "Sell, don't tell. Sell, don't tell." And so we were always trying to sell them on marketing or purchasing or one thing or another. And you had to do these things and show them a success. And then that success beget more success, you know? Interesting. So, 
I learned, yes, the trust, building that trust. I learned about the business uh, um, uh, in part by how we didn't make money, but also by doing these leveraged buyouts because we bought the company once in 86. We restructured the ownership in 88. I worked intensely on both, both of those, working with the lenders, working with the, the owners, and I was an owner myself. And so I really learned how we made money, how we didn't make money, and I learned the business plan. I learned how to sell it to investors and so on and so forth. So um, by the time we went public in 1991, I'd been with the company seven, going on eight years. And uh, matter of fact, when we went effective, when we went effective, I, I, it was almost exactly seven years I'd been with the company. And I'd gotten a great education. Um, you could say in a lot of ways I'd gotten an apprenticeship, you know, mm -hmm. which was enormously value, valuable. I, I could not appreciate it at the time, but I can see in retrospect, unbelievable, you know. And so what, once I went public, my boss, uh, to my utter surprise, uh, 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 asked me to move over to the chief financial officer position from general counsel. And I said, uh, okay. I mean, really is, uh, I'd been general counsel for, you know, you know, seven going on eight years. And, uh, that doesn't uh, yeah. happen often. The general counsel no. moving over, no. uh, CFO no. plus the CEO position. Right. Over. And I think part of that is because the, the, the training's different. And the head, yeah. con head construct is different, you know? But I do think I had become a, a decent salesman. And I think I think that I got out of private law practice. I only was in private law practice for four years. I think I got out of private law practice before it ruined me, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, if, you, mm -hmm. you don't mind, if you don't mind the humor, uh, or at least an attempt at it. The, uh, uh, the, you know, I think if you practice law for 20 years, cautioning people on risk management, risk management, risk management. It's hard to shift the, the mindset of selling people on on committing their dollars and so on. But I think my boss saw in me after the two LBOs on IPO, the, the ability to, to sell that stuff. So he moved me to CFO. Um, I was literally CFO a year, and I went to him and said, okay, I'm about to turn 40. I'm getting close to it anyway. I've made some pretty good money. I've got liquidity and, and net worth I never imagined I would have. So I'm going to go out and just see what the world is because uh, it's just time. And uh, so he he was uh, he was quiet about that for, you know, let's just say 60 days. And then he came back to me and said, well, why don't you move to the COO position and just run the company? And and Dan, the truth was, I was already playing that role, but not getting, the, didn't have the title, didn't have the pay, right? Didn't didn't have the formal responsibility. There was no COO functionally, you know. And so um, I, I didn't think about it a long time. I just said, okay, you know, I mean, I wanted a new experience. That was a new experience, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, when I had been with the company just over nine years, uh, I think that's right, ninety three. 84, um, I um, was made COO. And uh, and at that point, I really did formally have responsibility for day-to-day -day operation of the company. I was the only person who reported the CEO. Everybody reported to me then directly or indirectly. And um, I be began rebuilding the management team. I also began um, uh, really not of my own doing, but it turned out to be just enormous going forward. At that same time, 93, 
when I became COO, began negotiating a new license agreement for the system, uh, which really led to just enormous change in authority and cultural. Uh, it, it, it enabled us to become a modern franchisor. Mm-hmm. That the new the new agreement did, and I had no idea that it was going to have that result, but it but it did over time. So I became COO, began negotiating the license agreement, um, and. And when I'd been COO, let's just say a year and a half, uh, rather abruptly, my boss left the company for another job. And um, he surprised our board of directors by this. But at the board meeting, uh, they they just said to me, you want to be CEO? And they didn't do a search. They didn't do anything. Um, and uh, except offer me a job. And I, I thought, you know, well, I'm writing day to day already. Why not? No. Nope. Right. And it was 95. I'd been with the company for 11 years by this time. And, uh, you know, had a pretty good idea of what's what. That I was, I had just turned, uh, just turned 40. And, uh, and so, uh, lo and behold then, so how'd I get there? I've kind of laid that out for you. But then, uh, who, who would have known? Next 23 years, I was CEO of the company. And we built it from about 900 million in system wide sales to 4.5 billion. And uh, when I took over as CEO, the market capitalization was two hundred million, and later we sold it for two point three billion. So it was a it was a good run. run. Yeah, quite a run, and a, a very enjoyable one that that changed a lot of people's lives for the better. And that's that's one of my biggest points of pride. What I would love to hear some stories of uh, of opportunity that Sonic brought that maybe other franchise groups didn't be able to provide for the franchisees like um did did your franchisees have a significant stake in their business or sonic or how did you structure it so that motivations and, and everybody was aligned in the same direction yeah well our in our uh that's uh that's a great objective you just described everybody aligned in the same direction um uh, our franchisees, if they owned stock in the company, it was because they just went to the marketplace and bought it. There was some of them, mm-hmm. not a whole lot. And I think they they were always in a unique position to know, uh, you know, were sales up or were sales down, you know, because right. experiencing it. But I think a lot of them would say, hey, sales are pretty good. I'm going to buy some stock and let it run up and then sell it, you know. <laughs> you go back in, go back in when they saw opportunity. I think a lot of them did that for years, you know. But by mm-hmm. and large, they look to get their money off of uh, off their franchise operations, and mm-hmm. and and so how do we get things aligned? For years and years and years, and our common friend Scott McLean can, can testify to this in, in in space. For years and years and years, our uh, statement to them is, and in part when we put together objectives for the years, we told them what we hoped to build their average unit sales and average unit profits in that next 12 months. And when we had multi-year plans, we said our objective is to get you to this higher sales level, this higher profit level. And they always knew, they, they if, if they believed it, I think they came to believe it. And that was my perspective, that there was no way for the franchisor to win if the franchisees didn't win with us. Mm-hmm. And the only way for us to, as a franchisor, to win in the yep. long run was to have healthy and growing franchisees. Made that abundantly clear to them. And given how they went with our initiatives and put money back into growth and capital investment in their businesses, 
I think intuitively they came to believe that we were sincere about that. And that that's how we got that, you know, very much aligned. It was all about building positive customer experience at the store level and in turn franchisee, store level operator, sales and profitability. Right. So right. that that was always the focus. When we were when when we look for public company CEOs to invest in and their management team, um, we reference a research study called Return on Character book uh, that uh, is is one of the pillars of our investment approach. And that book identified four behavior characteristics that uh, correlated <laughs> with outperformance. Um, and those were uh, integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. Lots of times people are surprised about the forgiveness and compassion part of that, uh, of, of the four. How, how does that resonate in your experience, you know, with, with managing people? And, and, you know, speak to me a little bit about, you know, how those four characteristics resonate with you as, they really, as you reflect back on kind of your time. Sonic and managing what was a tremendously growth-oriented company that did really, really well. Well, um, I am I'm not familiar with them um, with with the with the book that you've just named, and and uh, I'm fascinated with the framework you've laid out, and and uh, and I will be picking it up, yeah, uh, you know, just immediately. You mentioned uh, uh, that it's out on uh, audio. An audio version, and I'm a late week. I may have about a three-hour drive in the car, and this would be a great Perfect. time to download it and start listening to it. Um, I read regularly. I don't want you to think I don't read. I just know I'm going to be in the car Friday. You know, so hey, Cliff, now, my kids make fun of me all the time for because all I all I do is listen. They think, oh well, it's like you, it's like you get half credit for listening to an entire history book on Lincoln, <laughs> or you know, and they laugh and, and they and they look at me like I can't read and. And yeah. I stand firm. I say it's far more efficient to listen to do other things than to sit. Well, my, my little book, my little book, Master of None, is out on audiobook as well. So feel free to. Uh, okay, uh, I'm going to listen to that. That's the deal. That's, that's my own little plug. And uh, but yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully you would enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed reading it out loud. So you're but again you're, the book. The book is on audio, and it's called Master of uh, None: How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. That's great. Yeah, that's great. But Cliff, Cliff Hudson, your 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 framework of uh, of compassion, uh, forgiveness, responsibility, integrity. Um, uh, I I think in some ways I would have liked to have uh, um, had that framework uh, in a in a, a top of mind conscious sort of way in the years yeah. I was running the company. But I think those characteristics came in in a big way, uh, different ways with each. Um, you know, when you're running a franchise system, now I think of integrity to a considerable degree. There are different ways to think about that, but a considerable degree, it, it is that your your public and your private discussions have to uh, completely align. And when you tell people this is what we're going to do, you you have to be saying this for a reason. The reason is you fully intend to do that. You know, right? And then and then you got to follow through with it, and you you've got to reward them when they follow through, and 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 maybe maybe you you don't reward them, but do some of the reverse when they're not following through with you. But the integrity piece is you now living living with your word and having your public and private word indeed be uh, completely consistent each with the other. And I think we did that pretty good at Sonic. I mean, I think we did that 
I think we did that within the company. I think I mean, we were very transparent about our goals and transparent about who had opportunity and how and why and so on. Very transparent with our franchisees about where we want to go and how we're going to get there on a quarter basis, on a year basis, multi-year basis. Uh, very open relationship with franchisees. If you came to some of our meetings with franchisees, I think you might have a hard time figuring out who is a corporate employee and who is an individual franchise owner, you know. Right? Very good relationships there. We didn't pursue any initiative of any sort without franchisee engagement, testing, and verification. So I think the the whole um, that's a that's a way of building a culture, but that also does go to integrity in terms of in terms of being very open about what you say you're going to do, have public and private discussions, be consistent, and then follow through, and and then rewarding those who who come with you on that. So uh, the integrity I love, the compassion piece, I think comes in in a variety of ways. I, I like compassion better than passion. You often hear in business, you know, why do you have a passion for it? Well, I, right. think, uh, I think in some ways the better question may be, if you're going to be a leader, is do you have compassion for your folks? You know, and, 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 the, and it's interesting because the passion is like a subset of the compassion. But part of the compassion piece for your folks, and if you're going to be a leader, is is their success critical to you? Because if it's because if it's not, they're gonna know it. They will know it through and through. And as part of your culture, if you are working to help change lives for the better, if you're working to help people have successful careers and you understand where they want to go and you're gonna help them get there and then how that's gonna pay off for them. And if they know and believe that, I mean, they'll stay with you through thick and thin, you know? So I love the compassion concept much more than just having passion for the job. Because I think a leader, it's a critical point that the people they are being led have to understand that you are, are intimately interested in betting on their success, you know? Right. The other is the responsibility uh, I guess I would have always, you know, I go back to my days of delivering newspapers, you know, I would have viewed that as almost first base, square one, you know. And if, and if an executive leader doesn't have that sense of personal responsibility, pushes it off on others, blames others. I had an executive new to the company one time, and a problem popped up that was a serious problem. It, had, it, it was a nice problem. The promotion was so successful, we were running out of product. When, and the new, the new fellow, when we had a meeting to talk about what we're going to do, the new fellow who had been in part of this was immediately pointing fingers about who had screwed up. Hmm. And, my, and my comment to him was, hey, 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 stop. we got to fix this. So the issue, to use your terminology, was one of taking responsibility to fix it, not shift right. responsibility to, to help your own career, you know? And, 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 those two points, by the way, this responsibility, the assuming responsibility and that concept of compassion for others, those go hand in hand. Because if you if you won't take responsibility for your own your own um, actions in particular, then other people in the organization are going to know you're a fraud. Right. And they're not going to believe you're out you're out to help them in any way. They're going to look at you. And they're going to be concerned that what you really are is a backstabber. Anyway, <laughs> my study I would view is, I mean, 
if there's any question about a person's assumption of responsibility, they have no business being, you know, a lead executive of, of any kind of complex organization. So I love that one. The forgiveness is a fascinating one because it comes in, um, you know, first of all, if you don't have the characteristic in life, then your life's pretty tough, you know, and, and yet in an organization, um, you know, what we used to say is, yeah, okay, we screwed up. Now, you know, how do we fix it? You know, and in a way, from an organizational standpoint, from an enterprise standpoint, there is an element of forgiveness there. The, the question is not who do we punish when things go wrong. The question is what we learn from it, you know? And I think that even the forgiveness there is we're going to learn to forgive ourselves when we screw up. I mean, if you that's have right. someone, if you, if you have someone that makes the same mistake over and over again, well, okay, that's a different issue. Um, that's not forgiveness. That's just bad judgment or something, you know? But at any rate, I would like to think in Sonic, though, we never called it forgiveness. I would like to think that we, um, you know, we were open about our mistakes. We'd tell the board, we'd even tell stockholders where we screwed up and what we were doing to fix it. Yeah. And I think my longevity and comfort with the company, I didn't have to cover for myself. And I think it probably helped me talk that way with my officers and franchisees and so on, gave people comfort in acknowledging that we screwed up. And then the, and then the, the, the strength to you know, forgive ourselves and keep moving, you know? Well, without even reading the book, you pretty much, you know, recited it. Uh, all those characteristics and examples are, are things that they found in research correlates to managerial and company success, you know, but it's run contrary to a lot of public companies' leadership today. I mean, what are your thoughts on, I mean, you were a public company, so you had quarterly demands on you. You had Wall Street you know, asking you to do certain things that maybe you weren't comfortable with based on just pure uh, profit motives and shareholders. What do you think of the shareholders' supremacy mentality around uh, the management companies and how it kind of relates with the way companies are being led today? Are we seeing a trend away from that? Are we seeing a trend back to it? What's your perspective on, on kind of how companies are being led today and good and bad yeah well you know first there's access to capital today of a whole variety of sorts that we didn't have 30 plus years ago mm -hmm. and and uh, we went public because um that seemed to be the uh, well in fact what we had was we have we had a 51 percent stockholder one to go public and so that was it you know but we uh, once we had once we had committed that we were going to be really a franchise focused company and and we were not eating up a lot of capital we really didn't need to be public we just never couldn't afford we couldn't find a way to afford to go private you know right if the if the stock was down nobody wanted to loan your money if the stock was up uh, you know it was too expensive you know and so uh until until work came along and was just willing to pay whatever it took that was the first time where no, the, the, the potential seemed real for it to go private. So I, I had to say, um, if I had a company like Sonic again at this point, I'd probably, I would prefer to be private, not public. You can more, you can more easily run, run it for the long run and not, not be worried about, you know, what happened this quarter. You know, you do have to, you have to take care of customers every day. So it's not as though that goes away, but it, but if you, if you're, 
if you know you want to make long-term investments in 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 in, in, uh, in facilities and um, in technology, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you could do that even though it has a negative impact on margins. Well, uh, if you have the confidence and reason to believe that it's all going to pay off, so the markets can be very short-term, and uh, um, yeah, it's a. Uh, I think with a franchisor, you know, not just you know, depending on who the shareholders of the company are, but franchisees signing fifteen and twenty-year notes, being able to take a long-term focus is a critical element to sustaining success. The the public company thing, I think, is tough. Um, but if you need that kind of, if you need access to that kind of capital, then you know, it's a one, 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 uh, one spot in a moder- a much more efficient marketplace capital markets now today do you think being public makes it hard to do the right thing as leaders and managers for the company long term i i never um i never felt uh compromised from you know from that standpoint as in hard to do the right thing i i uh i felt i did feel pressure at times and um but you feel in a franchise organization, and in our case, you know, you have a customer $6 at a time, you know, um, you always felt pressure. Because you, you, you know, sales were great today. What about tomorrow? Sales are great this week. What about next week? Sales are great this month. What about next month? I mean, um, you know, that was not a public company deal. That, that was running a brand where customers we're engaging with you six bucks at a time, and they might make right. your they might make their decision on three minutes notice. You know, so you had to just you had to do something to constantly top of top have top of mind awareness with consumers. That that was more of nature of just the business, not not um, not a public market. I didn't ever feel compromised or or a, like I was making bad decisions because they were short term decisions. Um, I, did I feel a sense of urgency at times to produce results? Yes, um, because you always had to live with the quarter. I felt that urgency, but I don't. I can't sitting here today to recall any decision I made that I would not have made. You know, right. had we had we not been a public company, I, 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 I come up a little short on that. What was the if, if there was one moment in your history of Sonic? that tested the metal of the company and the culture and even your leadership. Anything come to mind? Well, um, uh, maybe uh, two or three different times, but uh, one that I think really took Sonic to a different place altogether uh, was trying to convince operators in 2012, so just over 10 years ago, trying to convince operators to really reallocate marketing dollars. When I joined the company, there really was no centralized marketing, none. And so if you fast forward almost 20 years, I joined in 84, go to 2012, we were spending um, by that time easily, you know, something north of $150 million on marketing by then. But it was all, it was almost all, it, all the money was collected, almost all the money was collected through local marketing cooperatives. Um, so Dallas, you know, the, the, the DFW area is one television market. Um, uh, um, and so you collected the money from operators in Dallas and 
at that point, uh, let's just say half of it would go from that co-op towards national national cable effort, and the other half stayed local, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, coming out of the Great Recession, now uh, we had far-flung markets, not core markets that they were suffering, and so on. And um, uh, I sat down with our a new buyer, a national buyer by the name of Zenith out of New York City. And I asked them, I said, you know, okay, you've seen the way we collect our money and how we spend it. If I could break that up and not have it tied to geography. And I turned to you and said, see this money? Spend it however you see best across the country. I said, could you bring me for the same dollars? Could you bring me more gross rating points? And they said, oh, yeah. And I said, could you bring me a lot more? And they said, oh, yeah. And um, I said, could you do it in such a way that you would, for the same dollars, radically increase gross rating points for 100% of the system, every single market? They said, oh, yeah. And, and so we went about that conversation with them was in May of 12. And so May, June, we went about rapidly devising a plan to sit down and show our operators if you let go of this old bias about everything being on your local NBC affiliate, your local CBS affiliate, you know, whatever, let go of that. Let's put it in one big pot, and I can show you how your gross rating points, a lot of this had changed because cable had changed, and, mm-hmm. and, and in no small part because national cable had changed. And if you, if you would buy $100 million instead of $1 million, you could just get a hell of a deal, you know? You might Dallas might spend might spend you know five hundred thousand dollars on some on some football game, but if they would agree to work with ESPN and the whole system, spend five million dollars, I mean we'd be on the best football games. We would own the scoreboard. We'd own the halftime report. We'd own the. I mean, it was huge, you know. So that took that was tough, 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 because. Uh, because our operators had always spent money and uh, locally, and they were very distrusting at the idea of putting into a national pot where they lost it, you know? And so that was a, in that summer of 12, it was a tough, ugly negotiation, um, but one which, from my standpoint, we absolutely needed in order to move our system to a different place. And right. and. The convincing operators, the, the franchise leadership coming together, it was ugly. They were fighting with each other. Uh, there were so many oxes getting gored because of how many people. This, this, this is not a joke. How many of our operators got free trips from the local NBC affiliate? You mm-hmm. know? And if you're going to pull all that money nationally, then boom, that goes away. Their you lifestyle know? changes. Their lifestyle yeah. changes. And, and uh, we... Uh, had a deal under our license agreement that if we got two-thirds of the system, I think that was the number, if we got two stores representing two-thirds of the system to vote for the shift, then everybody had to do it. And by our convention in September, um, uh, but let me tell a little story first. Um, our, uh, um, the, the concern on some of our folks' part was uh, our old-time large franchisees wouldn't go for it. So, my question was, okay, give me the number one, give me the name of the number one guy you think would not go for this. They gave me his name. Said, okay. 
I call the guy up. Let's have dinner. He says, what's the topic? I said, you'll see when we get to dinner. So we had a dinner with him and, and two of his partners, and our guys got up and showed him. Most of his stores were, as it turned out, were in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. We showed him. You will not have to put one penny more into marketing, and we will bring you a 60% increase in gross rating point. Wow. And he cut us off and said, why wouldn't I do this? And we said, there's no reason why he wouldn't. He was our first test case. We were you know, some of our folks. And you went, needed to win him over, probably, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, yeah, in that July, August, uh, and then in September in the convention timeframe, we got the two thirds, and then the convention everybody folded in, ninety plus percent approval, just in time to buy national media for January of thirteen. I mean, you know, October was when you had to start buying. End of September, I think you had to. Had to have your money in for for January, and our business exploded in 13, 14, 15, 16. That really, I mean, Sonic had been growing toward becoming more of a national brand. But let me give you one anecdote. Um, for twenty years, the number one store in the system was in El Dorado, Arkansas. It was it was the first store to hit two million. In, in sales in a year, it was the first store to hit three million in sales in a year. Um, in thirteen, we rolled out this national advertising. In fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, our highest sales volume store in the entire system was in Long Island, New York. And and it every year. Um, every year they were opening a new store in Long Island, New York, and they were setting new records. And they hit they hit four million and five million AUV at those stores when the system was doing one point three million. So that national cable, uh, that's one story to show how that national cable made us a national brand and all these far flung markets, their business just took off and really did make Sonic a, a national brand. But that was a tough moment of uh, where leadership, openness, communication, integrity about the position, but taking responsibility and pushing it forward, um, that's that's what put the business to another level altogether. Yeah. And all your skills that you learned back in high school I you push know, when, forward. Yeah. When when I think about, you know, some of the things that some people went through during those years, um, you know, and literally, you know, some of the physical damage at, in my high school. But I'm thinking about, um, I'm thinking about civil rights leaders, etc. Um, if you can't stand before a, a hostile franchise advisory group and just sell them on a media issue, then get the hell out. You know. <laughs> oh man, no. that's a great story. Now, no. t- so. Your younger self, or for up and coming executives today, one little as we close off, I don't want to take more time than we've already been so kind to give us. But what advice would you have for folks in general as it relates to leadership um, in whatever organization and whatever spot they find themselves in? Right. Well, if it's a um, younger person, hold on. If it's a younger person, um, 
you know, I think about when I became, when I joined Sonic in my late 20s. Um, I do think in some strange way these days, we, our, our younger population somehow believes it's going to have its path defined. And if they don't understand the path, if they can't tell you the path they're going to be on, they feel like they're off. They're mm -hmm. off. They're off. They're not on the right path. And one of the things I say in my book uh, to that younger person reading the book is, you know, give yourself a break. You know, the, jur the journey is what it's all about. And so, and so be open to the journey. Don't try to define the journey. Don't try to define the outcome. Be open to the journey. Keep your eyes open. Keep your head up. Uh, you know, find what works for you, what feels something you can be successful at at the appropriate moment in time. Um, but, you know, but um, don't feel like you have to, you know, at 25 and 30 years old or 35 years old, already achieve what the, some penultimate success is. Because if you believe that, you're going to set yourself up, you know, for a sense of failure, you know? Yeah. So I love that. Uh, like it's it's a, so a right on. Yeah. General advice I would give to a younger person, particularly if you don't have a fixed, narrow specialty, you know? You're not a brain surgeon, you know? You're not a, uh, you're not a CPA, you know? But if you're a generalist like I was, then, then cut yourself some slack, you know? Be open. That, that's that's amazing advice for all of us that have a specific track, but we rely on kind of the good fortune of life to guide us along the way. And it really takes a sense of letting go and not trying to control everything to do that. Right. And uh, but your book, uh, a master of none, how a jack of all trades can still reach the top is uh i think perfectly form-fitted for so many young folks out there uh with that kind of psychological pressure that they carry in in getting to the thing that they think they need to get to um and uh anyway i'm just so grateful for your contribution at sonic the stories but then more importantly you know you don't have to get on this podcast and talk to us about things you have you're not plugging in any products. You're not the CEO. You're just kind of giving back uh, what you learned. And, and I just want to thank you for that. And uh, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you for the opportunity. And um, uh, thank you for the, the, the kind comments. I appreciate that. But thank mm -hmm. you for the, thank you for the focus uh, that your, that your podcast has on these, these areas of compassion, integrity, forgiveness, responsibility, good life, good life skills to develop. Great business leadership skills to develop. So yeah. you're delightful. Well, thanks again for, for being with us. Very good. Thank you.